agreement beyond what was announced on Friday? What do you mean in your tweet? Well, we have an agreement on something that uh, they will announce very soon. It's all done. Donald Trump's threat to impose tariffs on Mexican goods is over for now. And they have to get approval, and they will get approval. If they don't get approval, we'll have to think in terms of tariffs or whatever. But it's just another aspect of what we've done. Next, the question is how a U.S.-Mexican deal seeking to stem migration will take shape. We know there will be an expansion in the number of U.S. asylum seekers waiting in Mexico. Already, some 10,000 people are in Mexican border states as part of this program dubbed Remain in Mexico, or officially known as Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. But how protected those migrants will be is less certain if MPP extends into border areas notorious for crimes like kidnapping. The other question is whether Mexico can meet Trump's deadline to avoid another tariff standoff. And so in the short term, could Mexico dramatically increase its apprehensions if it really had the political will kind of across the board to do so? Yes. Could it sustain this over a long period of time? I'm less uh, certain. That's Stephanie Loitert, director of the Mexico Security Initiative at UT Austin. And I'm Karen Sissis of ASCOA Online. In this episode, we talked about Remain in Mexico, why so many Central Americans are migrating right now, and whether Mexico can meet Trump's enforcement expectations. You're listening to Latin America in Focus. Latino America in Foco. America Latina in Foco. Podcast by America Society, Council of the Americas on politics, economics, and culture in the region. I'm talking today with Stephanie Loitert. It's so nice to be speaking with you again about immigration. Thanks for being with me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. It was so great to talk to you in a previous podcast about migration in Mexico. Um, We're going to make sure that we have the link to that other podcast in the podcast notes. Um, And it's really great to welcome you back. So let's get started on this new migration agreement that seems to be in the process of getting hammered out and defined between the United States and Mexico. And as we know, um, in recent days, uh, this was done in part to prevent um, escalating tariffs being imposed on Mexico. So we'll see how it goes. But to start off, there's a lot that's known and not known with this accord. Um, We can start with what we do know. So let's start with Remain in Mexico. Um, Remain in Mexico is a program in which um, U.S. asylum seekers uh, wait in Mexico for their proceedings to advance in the United States. And it's something that started up a few months ago. I'm wondering, if can you can you tell us a little bit about that and how you see that potentially changing? How many people are, are where are people located, that sort of thing? Sure. So Remain in Mexico is something that we began to hear rumors about back actually in November, even before the Lopez Obrador administration came into office. The Washington Post published a piece saying that this was in the works, Uh, which was at the time denied, and there was some kind of cagey comments that nothing had been agreed upon. But then fast forward a few weeks, and in December, there's an announcement that Remain in Mexico has been agreed upon, and then in January, another announcement that it will begin to be implemented. Um, So this is, again, an agreement that's been around for a couple months. It started in 
the Tijuana San Diego sector, um, likely because uh, that's where the kind of high profile Honduran migrant caravan arrived. And there were thousands of people who were waiting in Tijuana for the chance to uh, be able to present their claims at a port of entry and, and ask for asylum. So that's that's where it began. And it began in people who were crossing through the port of entry and uh, and asking for asylum. And some of those people were then returned uh, back to Mexico to wait for the duration of their case in the United States. Um, while their case in the U.S. progressed through the court system, they would be waiting in Mexico. Now, over time, MPP or Remain in Mexico began to be uh, expanded across the border. Um, it was expanded to Mexicali or Calexico, uh, a little further east, and then to El Paso and Juarez, which has been the sector that's seen pretty high jumps in the number of people, mostly Guatemalans, who have been arriving there. Other than those three areas along the border, it hasn't really hasn't been implemented. Um, but over the past, well, since January through last week, the Mexican government came out saying that 10,000 people had been returned to Mexico under this program. In the, in the agreement, uh, the agreement outlines that Remain in Mexico will now be expanded across the whole border. Now, this isn't really new because when Remain in Mexico was put in place, it was kind of piecemeal implemented across the border, but there were kind of constant rumors that it would, be, it would continue to be expanded uh, when the, another migrant caravan arrived uh, to Piedras Negras, it was rumored that they put in place Remain in Mexico and Eagle Pass right across the border from Piedras Negras. Um, but this hasn't really happened. We've only really seen it in these three areas. So an expansion would be kind of a continuation of the original idea that this would eventually be across the whole border. But that would bring a number of challenges, particularly because this hasn't been implemented in most of South Texas, which is where the majority of Central Americans continue to cross. Um, and part of the challenge here is that that would mean returning people to cities like Nuevo Laredo or Piedras Negras or Reynosa, uh, which are extremely dangerous for right now for asylum seekers um, or for migrants, particularly um, it puts them at high risk for any crimes, but particularly kidnappings. Can I ask you, what sort of facilities are people staying in under this Remain in Mexico program? Are they, are they placed in facilities where they're offered some sort of protection? Or, or what, what's, what, what state are they in? That's a really good question. And it, puts, it kind of gets to the heart of the matter, which is that a lot of the burden of Remain in Mexico has fallen onto the municipal governments, um, the Mexican municipal governments, so particularly the Juarez government, Tijuana and Mexicali. And within these cities, the largest burden has fallen onto the civil society organizations, primarily the migrant shelters, um, which have been kind of the main organizations supporting uh, these individuals. Now, for example, the Juarez government has stepped up and taken on a larger role uh, to provide um, basic services to people who are returning from Mexico or through the Remain in Mexico program and asylum seekers in general. Um, but both in these cities that have uh, people coming back to remain Mexico and then just kind of otherwise as people are waiting due to metering, um, there isn't sufficient um, housing, kind of just shelter, food, humanitarian services to address the number of people who are currently waiting in these cities. And if you saw a sharp increase through an expanded remain in Mexico, that would only get worse. 
So people are expected to go to these cities and find their own type of shelter. It's it's sort of like go back, we send you back and you find some place to stay. Is that is that how it works? There certainly isn't a I think the Mexican government in theory is supposed to help with this coordination. But if you look at it across kind of the border wide policy, there is no coherent Mexican official policy for how these individuals should be sheltered and what type of services they should be provided, which again puts the pressure on the municipal governments to respond. Um, And a lot of that, again, has been passed on to the shelters. And one thing I'm curious about is there has been this huge upswing in the number of border apprehensions in the United States. We, we talked about this in the last podcast, some of the reasons for it, which can be about security, crime, um, and climate change. But we're really seeing a huge upsurge with the most recent numbers for May showing um, more than 140,000 uh, apprehensions at the border. Why is this happening so fast? And we know that there are these different problems, but why this upsurge so quickly? It's a really good question, and it's a question that I don't think anyone has a simple answer to, and that it's definitely a lot of people are trying to grapple with right now, myself included. I I would say that you have to start always in the conditions in Central America. Um, You have to look there, and, and nothing there has, if it hasn't gotten worse, it certainly hasn't improved. So the conditions there continue to be bad, and in certain cases are getting worse. Um, particularly in terms of food security or um, ongoing droughts or coffee plagues. So that's on on one side. But that only explains so much. Um, So kind of what's the spark that's been pushing it in the past couple months? Um, One of the the theories that I think is pretty or has kind of some accuracy is this idea that there is this momentum behind the you have to come now Um, because things are only going to get worse. Um, And I've seen that kind of articulated in a few ways of, you know, you have to come now um, because maybe they'll stop giving out permisos or you should come now because it looks like they might close the border. And I do think a lot of these proclamations out there of um, that you've seen from uh, Trump and his administration of we're going to close the border, we're going to stop doing this, we're going to stop giving asylum. Um, Certainly for family members here, uh, trying to get their loved ones to join them, um, or for people who are considering making the journey, this feeling of, okay, maybe I really should go now. I do think that that's part of it. Um, This all combines with a lot of other factors as well. For example, when you have a large number of people who arrive, like what you're seeing right now out in the El Paso sector, you have, or Tucson sector as well. Um, you have large numbers of people who are arriving. Border Patrol doesn't have the capacity to, to process them. I mean, actually, you see this in the RGV, you're seeing it across most of the border. And so they're processing them as fast as they can. So people are getting processed through Border Patrol uh, stations within days um, at the most. Um, and so you also have this kind of feedback loop, um, which is that if you go now, you should go now, because A, you might not have the opportunity, and B, um, you probably won't be held in detention that long. And then this combines with other uh, kind of other factors, which is that you can often make the the journey now. There's, uh, you know, in buses that's been going on for a while, but it's pretty popular. Um, And if you bring a child, you're not hiking through the desert for five days. 
um, but you can just kind of go to the other side of the border and turn yourself in. Um, so that all these factors kind of combine with A, the conditions are still terrible in Central America. B, if you come now, you probably will get processed pretty quickly and see who knows if you can do this, you know, in a couple months. And actually on that ladder that the border is closing, going back to remain in Mexico, um, anecdotally, I've heard that some of the pitches that you hear smugglers saying is that uh, remain in Mexico is being expanded across the border, but it hasn't been expanded the whole way. So you should come now before they expand it, you know, across every border city. Um, so the fact they did it in some places, but not others, also may have created some of that rush. That's very interesting. I also was looking at the numbers and noting, um, reporting that there haven't been the, these levels of border apprehensions in about 17, 18 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the time, there, there's been this real shift because it's not Mexicans who are are crossing the border into the United States. It's Central Americans. And, and so there's been this change in the trend from, in the past, it would be um, Mexicans and Mexican men, and now there are actually more Mexicans returning to Mexico than going to the United States. Instead, it's Central Americans. And a huge portion of those um, apprehended at the border were families or family members. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Is there, why families um, so much now? Yeah. So if you go back and what's interesting about the numbers you're saying, the numbers are so high and we haven't, you're right, we haven't seen this for for a long period of time. Um, and then what's even interesting, the comparison you're making is that back in 2000, say, when you had you know, 1.6 million apprehensions, those were mostly uh, Mexican men. And they, those aren't in separate individuals. Those could be the same individuals who were apprehended multiple times. Um, and, and most people were apprehended at least, you know, t- two times, for say. And so they would be apprehended. And because there was no criminal charges put against them, they would just be brought back to Mexico where they might try again the same night, the next night, until they eventually kind of made it through to the U.S. Oh, and by comparison, what you're seeing right now are these large numbers of people who come and then seek some type of humanitarian protection, mostly asylum. And so they're not counted multiple times. So if you're looking at unique individuals, you actually might be starting to approach the numbers now that we saw back kind of at the height when you point to those those peaks in terms of, of apprehension numbers, because those are, again, apprehensions, not unique individuals, and we're often caught multiple times versus what you're seeing today, which is pretty much those numbers represent all unique individuals because they're only apprehended once and then they enter into the, the system for asylum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. We're certainly at a high number. And then to the second point of why families, that is, you know, in 2014, you saw kind of an increase in families and unaccompanied minors. And those went down. And then starting 2016, you see families going up again. That all kind of slides down when, when Trump is elected. And then you see this kind of straight upward since then exponential growth in, in families. I think that there's probably a range of factors that contribute to this. Well, the first big one, I'll start with the biggest one, is that if you are seeking humanitarian protection, well, if you're an adult and you seek protection from the Border Patrol or, or the Office of Field Operations, customs on the bridge, you're likely to be put in detention and to remain in detention for the majority of your case, which could be months or or longer. 
by comparison, if you arrive and make that same claim and you have a minor with you, you are likely to be released within several days. Uh, at the most, you'd be sent to family detention and then perhaps released within a couple weeks. Um, of course, this isn't every case, but this is, we're talking kind of the majority of the cases, the vast majority. And so there you just by, you do create an incentive if someone's going to make an asylum claim to bring a child with you to avoid being detained um, for these long periods of time. Now, um, not only is it just the detention incentive, it can be the financial incentive because a smuggler might charge someone $2,500 to cross through Mexico. And then another uh, $4,000, say, to get from the Mexican border to Houston. Now, if you're a family, if you're an adult with a child, so that's two people, that's $5,000, $2,500 each, and you get to the Mexican border, you can just cross the border, turn yourself into Border Patrol, and stop there. If you're an adult, you have to get to the Mexican border and then pay that second leg to Houston. So it ends up being, say, let's say 6500 7000 to get from Central America to Houston. Well, if it's you and a child, it would be 5000 to the border. So it's cheaper for you to, to go with a child because you're not paying that final leg from the border to a city in the interior of the United States. And so you have this financial incentive to, bring, to come with a child. You have the structural incentive of detaining adults um, but not detaining uh, adults with children. Um, and then the kind of the other factor I'd say is that there are cases, certainly, um, where you have people who are getting out of places like, say, San Salvador, where you have uh, gang members who are threatening the minors. And so the parents are literally leaving because they do not want the minors to be in danger. Um, so in those cases, of course, they're going to come as a family. Of course, it's the adult with the minors because they're trying to actually remove the minors from these bad situations. Um, so you do have kind of a whole range of circumstances that lead to families traveling together. Um, but certainly there are often financial and, of course, kind of these structural uh, incentives that would bring someone to would influence someone's decision to travel with or without their child. Mm hmm. It's interesting you you made, you raised El Salvador. If we look at the discussions that are happening between the United States and Mexico, um, there wasn't a lot of talk about discussions with the primary sending countries, the countries that uh, people are migrating from. So there wasn't a lot of discussion about, are we talking to Guatemala? Are we talking to El Salvador? Are we talking to Honduras? And then on top of it, Guatemala is about to have an election. El Salvador has a new president. Honduras is having different political issues with protests and things like that. Do you see a possibility for these governments to get involved? Or how are these uh, governments involved in this overall uh, negotiation? The extent to which each is involved, I'm unsure of. However, the, I mean, for years, the U.S. government has been trying to work with I mean, let's just go back to 2014, because that's kind of the most emblematic. You have the Obama administration really working closely with Central America, creating the, the Alliance for Prosperity, uh, which was, you know, a multi, ended up being multi-billion dollars. Um, they were asking for a billion each year. They got less than that, but um, over time it, it added up investment into creating economic opportunity and security across Central America, 
This was continued by the Trump administration. Um, you see Trump administration officials uh, spending time in these three countries, meeting with officials. Um, certainly there is some level of, of engagement. However, the success of that engagement, I mean, you see these uh, memorandums of understanding and these joint agreements to increase cooperation. Um, the level of success of that is doubtful if you're measuring it success based on the number of uh, Central Americans who are leaving the region. Um, so you have years of this engagement, the numbers of people leaving has only increased. Um, so there certainly is, is engagement. Um, it will be interesting to see what kind of moving forward, how it all shakes out, how U.S. Uh, engagement with El Salvador changes, um, how it changes with the president of Honduras, given uh, some of the investigations around um, drug trafficking and around family members, his family members of drug trafficking as well. So I think we'll kind of have to see how it all shakes out. Certainly, those governments have the largest role to play um, because it's due to their policies or lack thereof um, that people feel that they can't have, they can't create a life for themselves uh, within the region and they feel that they have to leave. So first and foremost, um, it is the responsibility of these governments to do a better job at addressing many of these needs. Um, and the U.S., I, I see the U.S. As, as being able to play a role in supporting these policies um, the successful ones and helping in, in certain ways, whether it's technical support or funding, um, to have them be more efficient or to have a better reach um, to be able to support the population. Um, but yeah, in, in terms of the last, in terms of this agreement, in terms of the, the rhetoric coming out of the administration, it has been mostly focused on Mexico. And I think that's primarily because this administration has focused mostly, uh, at least rhetorically, on enforcement and uh, looking tough and having a tough border and stopping people and sending them back and that type of language instead of the, the kind of other side, which is we need to get at the source of this issue, which is why are people leaving? And we need to address that and support policies that, that address those challenges. And as we know, the Trump administration has actually been cutting aid and funding for the types of development programs that would go to attack those problems, right? Exactly. I mean, you had the Trump administration, I mean, for even from the beginning, they were using it as this kind of carrot and stick. And they were kind of threatening, you know, if migration numbers don't come down, don't go down, we're going to cut off aid. And then they did announce they were cutting off aid. Um, and so instead of viewing this really ever as a kind of a comprehensive challenge that needs to be addressed in certain parts, and technically, a lot of it has been been a lot of show of force. It's been kind of this, you're not going to help us, we'll cut your aid. Instead of kind of looking at where is this aid going? How are we going to be uh, using it to, to best kind of support people in the region to stop them from coming? Um, so it's, I mean, aid should, there should definitely be a conversation about what type of aid uh, is most needed. Is the aid that we're sending, is that the most effective? Are there better ways that we could implement this and evaluate it? That would be, those are great conversations to have, but it hasn't been used like that at all. In fact, as you mentioned, it's it's just been waived as a tactic, kind of as a threat, and then ultimately uh, cut. And to, talking about enforcement, uh, we know that 
it's unclear whether it was part of this agreement or not, but there are going to be 6,000 members of Mexico's uh, newly minted National Guard uh, now present at the border, uh, Mexico's border with Guatemala. Um, I know you've spent time actually traveling with migrants um, and you've been to that border. I'm curious, there are parts of this border that, you know, are really unsettled, and as I understand it, um, it's a little bit like trying to build a wall uh, across the desert and through water and through protected lands between the United States and Mexico. Is it possible to truly guard all of that, of Mexico's southern border with Guatemala? Mm, the short answer is no, but the broader answer is probably yes. Um, I'll explain it. On the border itself, it's incredibly porous. There's no border in many places. It's, uh, at best, a series of, of kind of little columns um, every couple hundred yards that mark the border, or in other places, it's just a river. Um, and so you can cross back and forth quite freely. People do all the time um, to visit friends, go to work, go shopping, um, whatever you need to do on the other side. Now, that if you tried to stop people right there, the answer is no. It'd be, I mean, the the type of infrastructure you would need, um, the type of investment, and that's just not even in the realm of, of the possible, uh, at least in the medium, medium to short and medium term. Now, that's never been how the Mexican government has tried to stop people. Um, instead, they've created these uh, kind of internal almost like ports of entry along the highway systems. They're kites, um, and they, there's three of them, I think, in, in full operation, two that are being constructed right now. And they're interagency uh, kind of fusion centers where traffic is routed throughout. And so that, that means that every car on the highway, it's about 100 miles, say, in right at kind of main choke points in, in the highways, every car or bus, truck that's traveling um, has to go through one of these uh, checkpoints. Now, that's uh, one place where you see a lot of people getting caught. Um, if the National Guard, in collaboration with the INM, sets up roadblocks on different highways, um, if they go to the train stations, um, if they go to places where they know that kind of buses are heading out of loaded with uh, Guatemalan migrants, for example, they might be able to successfully apprehend a large number of people. Um, most of the people traveling are traveling with guides, which means that they're traveling in vehicles, which means that they could set up checkpoints along major highways and uh, likely apprehend larger numbers of, of people. So if you tried to actually stop people on the border itself, not quite possible. Um, but if you're trying to get people as they go north on buses, private cars, trailers, uh, they have a much better, which I'm sure is going to be their plan, then they'll have a much better chance at apprehending large numbers of people. One thing that's interesting in looking at this is that if you look at the agreement, there's an indication within it that um, there'll be a point within 90 days when um, prog they'll be checking in on progress to determine whether Mexico is making progress on stopping uh, migrants from traveling through. Marcelo Brad, the foreign minister of Mexico, indicated that it could be in 45 days that they would have to check in on progress. I'd have to think that they have some confidence they can accomplish this. 
if they're trying to avoid another battle over tariffs, they must think we can accomplish something between now and then. What do you think? Do you think that they can meet that kind of a short deadline? I do. I do think that they could meet it. Um, it, it would certainly require a lot of political will <laughs> because a lot of this migration is facilitated by networks of corruption across Mexican institutions. Um, and that's, for example, how are all these buses uh, with migrants crossing through Mexico? Um, they're paying INM checkpoints along the way. Um, and certainly the INM is not the only government agency that is taking money uh, from migrants and to allow them to pass. And so if you want to stop that from happening, it means addressing the corruption element of it. And I think they're trying to do this by bringing in a totally different uh, force of the National Guard and, and trying to use them to um, be a new face and to kind of break up some of these existing um, corruption networks. If they uh, are successful in doing that, then yes, they likely could um, stop a large number of people. Now, what we've seen in the past when Mexico does things like this, when, for example, when they implemented Programa Frontera Sur, they had large numbers of operations, large numbers of joint operations. They, that resulted in large numbers of apprehensions. It spiked up. It stayed pretty high for about a year. And then it tapered downwards again. And that's partly because it's a lot of money to keep doing that. Uh, it's a lot of money to fund 6,000 National Guard members to continue these operations. And on top of that, uh, kind of over time, these you know smugglers found new outlets, found new tactics, um, found new people uh, who they could bribe to get people through and kind of restructured their operations. And so in the short term, could Mexico dramatically increase its apprehensions if it really had the political will kind of across the board to do so? Yes. Could it sustain this over a long period of time? I'm less uh, certain. Again, it would require a, a large amount of money, a large amount of political will, and kind of measures to stop those corruption networks from reestablishing themselves, which in the past they haven't been able to do. Great. Thank you very much. That's very interesting. I think we're going to stop on that point because it brings us back to the overall point. There are a lot of unanswered questions, a lot of things we, we don't yet know, and we'll have to see. Thank you so much for talking with me. Of course. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening. I'm Karen Zissis of ASCOA Online. This podcast was produced by Luisa Lemmy. This is the second time I'm speaking with Stephanie Leutert about migration, and we talked about Central American caravans the first time around. Check the podcast notes for a link to that episode. The music in this podcast was recorded at America Society in New York City. Find out about upcoming concerts at our Park Avenue headquarters at musicoftheamericas.org. Finally, we hope you enjoyed this podcast and you can help us spread the word by giving us five stars, sharing, and subscribing at iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Music